0: Over to you both.
1: Morning. We're reading from the start of Hebrews chapter 8 from the New Living Translation. Here is the main point. We have a high priest who sat down in the place of honour beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. There he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. And since every high priest is required to offer gifts and sacrifices, our high priest must make an offering too. If he were here on earth, he would not even be a priest, since there already are priests who offer the gifts required by the law. They serve in a system of worship that is only a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. For when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning, be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I've shown you here on the mountain. But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood, for he is the one who mediates for us on a far better covenant with God, based on better promises. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. But when God found fault with the people, he said, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant, So I turn my back on them, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbours, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone, from the least to the greatest, will know me already." And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear.
2: In that first covenant between God and Israel, that first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. There were two rooms in that tabernacle. The first room were a lampstand, a table, and sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the Holy Place. Then there was a curtain, and behind the curtain was a second room, called the Most Holy Place. In that room were a gold incense altar, and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered with gold on all sides. Inside the ark were a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of divine glory, whose wings stretched out over the ark's cover, the place of atonement. But we cannot explain these things in details now. When these things were all in place, the priests regularly entered the first room as they performed their religious duties. But only the high priest ever entered the most holy place, and only once a year. And he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. This is an illustration pointing to the present time. For the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the consciences of the people who bring them. For that old system deals only with food and drink and various cleansing ceremonies, physical regulations that were in effect only until a better system could be established. Christ is the perfect sacrifice. So Christ has now become the high priest over all good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins.
0: Thanks so much, Anna and Holly. And uh, hello, everybody. Are we on and coming through okay? There we go. Hello in the room. It's, it's great to see you all. And um, thanks so much, guys, for, uh, for doing the reading. And I just wanted to kick off today by um, just flagging up, before we um, get going in Hebrews, the, uh, the month of events that we um, did last term, we need to talk about race. It's uh, something that this week, um, as a leadership team, we've been um, thinking about some of the changes that have happened in our, our own hearts and church culture um, uh, since the, that month, which uh, very much began a conversation that we want to uh, continue amongst us. And um, now would be a great time just to uh, get back again your, your copy of the, the booklet that we produced. Uh, you can get in touch with the office if you haven't um, got one of those. And um, just the, the 10 action steps in there that we can all be a part of. It's a great time to kind of um, revisit those and just see how we can be best engaging with an issue that is very much um, at the heart of God's. Um, Today, as the guy said, we're um, we're in the book of Hebrews, and I just want to start off by asking this question, right? If I said to you, what is your birthplace or your nation best known for, I wonder what you would say. I wonder what your answer would be. And I suspect that for many, the answer would go quite quickly to the subject of food, now, we once did a home group social called Bring Some Food From Where You're From. And um, it was absolutely great as, as people brought all sorts of stuff and, and we ate together. Um, and I, I love it when I get to try things, uh, let's say, from other nations I have never tried before or things got very fond memories of. Jollof rice. There's the glory of God right there in that yes piece. Come on. What makes me smile on those occasions is when people who've been born in English towns and cities bring things from their town or city that the rest of the country really just isn't that bothered about. So, you know, like Bakewell tarts or uh, Melton Mowbray pork pies or like cheddar cheese, the rest of us are like. Yeah, whatever, it's just another food in the supermarket, isn't it? In Devon and Cornwall, where there is practically a civil war going on as to whether you put the jam first or the cream first on a scone, the rest of us are just, well, it's just like the nearest one on the table, isn't it? Or, you know, some, something like that. I absolutely love it. Obviously, there's one exception, which would be the Staffordshire oat cake. Where I'm from, which when you try it will rock your world. When this lockdown's over, everyone over to our house, or when the pandemic's over, Staffordshire oatcakes are plenty, you will be blown away by it. If you'd have asked a first century Jew, what is your birthplace or your nation best known for? They would have said, and and it's worth remembering that in in this this letter to the Hebrews, the writer is writing to Jews who have decided to follow Jesus. So they have a, a Jewish worldview. If you'd asked them, what's your birthplace or your nation best known for? They'd have said two things to you. They'd have said covenant and they'd have said temple. Now, those are the things that um, are very much talked about in the passage that Anna and Holly read out. And I appreciate that uh, in our 21st century culture, there's uh, not quite the, the immediate sort of um, connection with us as to why those things are important. But I just want to encourage you, if, as you were going through, you thought, what on earth is this? On about or well, covenant and temple makes you think, why on earth is that important? Just just come with us on, on the journey. I think there is so much stuff in here that can completely rock our world as we see that Jesus is incredible and so much better than anything that the world would throw our way. So we're gonna dive right into these two things as to why they're so important. So the, the first one is, is covenant, which begs the question: what is a covenant? And a covenant is like a a heart promise, if you like, a a promise of the heart, often accompanied with an oath. And so a marriage, for instance, would would be a covenant. You know, the couple are, are standing there and they say, everything I have, I give to you, and you think, yeah, they don't know what they're letting themselves in for with that one. And then with so, with so many couples, then there's some sort of immediate chucking out of mainly the husband's like eclectic mug selection or like dodgy crockery or like wardrobe tastes or whatever. Emma and I were sorting my wardrobe out ahead of moving house last summer. And there was one T-shirt she pulled out and it was like, what on earth is this? When did you get this? I was like, yeah, I was 13. And uh, so it went immediately. But, that, but a covenant is a, is a heart promise. And so when it's talking about covenant in the passage, what it's meaning is it's taking the, the readers back, or the hearers back to um, the Israel's history, where they just come out of slavery in Egypt And they're in the the, the wilderness, and Moses, their leader, goes up the mountain called Sinai on their behalf, and God speaks to him. From from Exodus chapter 19, we're we're quoting here. And just imagine, if if you were one of the Israelites, you'd just been set free from slavery in Egypt, you and your nation, and then God says this to you about your people. So he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the the people of Israel. And what went on was then God gave Moses what the people called the law, almost like this, this external kind of life, this set of regulations that they were to, to live by. And they loved this identity. If you'd have asked them from that moment right through into Jesus' day and beyond, the Jewish people, the people of God, the people of Israel said, we are the covenant people of God most shown by the law that we keep. They loved this identity. Now, many of us will have um, learned to drive, or maybe some even hearing this now are are in the process of it. And um, I was taught to drive by um, a guy in his 50s, um, ex-military, thought that contemporary music was getting a tape. Yes, ask your parents tape out, putting it into the, 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 CD, the tape player, and it played the theme tune to the 1990s police drama Heartbeat. You remember that one? You know the heartbeat, why do I miss it? We won't have any more of that, but, um, but anyway. One of the things that you have to navigate when you are learning to drive is the bizarre collection of signposts and signs that make up our British transport system. And every once in a while, a smile will be brought to our face as we spot some kind of strange signpost. Here are four of my favorites um, that I found. We've got sign not in use, yeah, thanks for that. Uh, keep right, but pointing left, okay. Um, we've got the one, uh, it's quite small there, but essentially it's on the edge of a bridge. It says bikes to this side and cars to, well, the other side of the bridge. And then my favorite one on the right-hand side there, you need to stop right here, but you can't go left, you can't go right, you can't go backwards and you can't go forwards, and then there's even signs in the background tell you that you're going the wrong way. Um, but when the scholar N.T. Wright, makes this point that this old covenant that the Jews were so excited about, it's a series of signposts towards the final destination of Jesus himself. And so if we use it as signposts, then it's great. But actually, if we use the Old Covenant, if the, if the hearers use their way of life, this identity they were so proud of, as the ultimate destination. Well, then, as uh, my friend Phil Silveratnam, uh, part of the One Thing team said to me this week, you just end up driving into the signposts, and uh, that doesn't really work at all. The author's saying to them, your own scriptures... And that's, that's, a, that's a modern term. They had the, um, the law, the prophets, and the writings. But your own scriptures, the writer to the Hebrews says, point to the deficiency of this old covenant, which is shown in, in 8 verse 7 by the need to look for a new one. And then he quotes from these scriptures, Jeremiah chapter 31. And it's a bit like, do you know when Andrew Mars interviewing a politician and he says to you, and I quote because he wants to absolutely nail them. This is the kind of, an I quote moment. And he, this, the, the quote that um, it was Anna reading at, at this point, it's read out from Jeremiah chapter 31. It talks about this new covenant that is coming that actually describes the life that we as Christians now have in Jesus Christ. He has fulfilled this promise. And he says, it won't be like the old covenant where you didn't continue in it anyway. That's verse nine but there'll be three things that will characterize it. The the, the law, this external set of standards and regulations, God says, I'm gonna take that, I'm gonna put it on your minds and in your heart, and then by my spirit, I'm gonna guide you that you will know because of the Holy Spirit, my ways, my ethics, my life. That's verse 10. It says in verse seven that there'll be a personal knowledge of God. That's the expectation that we can have. That in the Old Testament, they'd be clamoring around for some teacher to say, will you explain to me the ways of God? And yet we can know him intimately, each one of us. And verse 12, there'll be the forgiveness of sins. All fulfilled in Jesus, who came so that unlike Israel, who kept going off, who kept worshiping other idols, who kept not meeting the standard, Jesus came so that we would not fail to meet the standards anymore. That he has qualified us to share in this beautiful kingdom. In spite of our failings, in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of the things that we know and wish were different, Jesus came to present us holy and blameless before the Father. And I just really had in my, in my spirit as I was preparing this week that a real sense that God wanted to say to, to someone in particular, is in the room, you, you at home, you are not a failure. Whatever you've said over yourself in the last few months, whatever your boss at work has said to you, whatever you feel the, the expectations of a good parent are, or whatever you want it to be, Jesus would say to you today, you are not a failure. Because he presents you blameless before the Father. Your performance does not affect your position. And this new covenant, this hope that Jesus brings, the author says, it's enacted on way better promises as eight verse six. It's almost as if he's saying, you know, you can go for the alternatives if you want. You know, you can try and live by some external standard, be it what society says you should be or or someone in your life says you should be. You can try and live that way if you want to. You know, that you can try and um, get an idea of what God is like from a distance if you want to. You can ignore the scriptures and just philosophize about what he's like. You can pretend that uh, that sins don't need to be forgiven. And even just to speak that way is judgmental. You can try and live that way if you want to. But he's saying it's obsolete. It doesn't get you anywhere. The way of Jesus is so much better God's ways written on our heart, an intimate personal relationship with him and our sins forgiven. You know, I was chatting to my window cleaner this week and he was explaining that he's he's just lost his son. Um, What do you say to a parent who's just lost their child? And um, in honesty, I mainly listened to him, just heard him out, just gave him a chance to speak. But I, I did get a chance just to, we connected together on the fact that the world is very, very broken, isn't it? And we were talking together about how there's all manner of ways that we can try and respond to the brokenness of the world. But when Jesus comes, when Jesus came, he came to begin to put the world back together. He came to bring a hope that went beyond the brokenness of the world, that one day he will sort all things out that because of the Holy Spirit, we can know within us a hope of God's guiding. We can know God personally, and that can give us hope in any situation. There's more to come on this whole um, topic of covenant in, um, in a couple of weeks time when Rosie picks it up in, um, Nine verse uh, fifteen and, and following, but essentially the author then says, you know, if you want an example of, of all this stuff, this this old covenant, this identity, etc., all you need to do is look at the old temple system, uh, the temple system in the old tabernacle. So covenant was the first one, temple is the second one, and we've got these words flying around, haven't we? Like temple, tabernacle, tent. Like, come on, what what's going on here? Essentially, remember Moses was up the mountain hearing from God. God gave him instructions on how to build uh, a tent which was called the tabernacle and functioned as a temple. So this tent thing got built, built in the wilderness. It was a portable temple. Sacrifices happened there, priests operated there, they called it the tabernacle, etc. And then they kind of moved, it moved around with them, then they got into the land, they built a permanent one, they got kicked out of the land, it got um knocked down anyway by the, um, by the Babylonians, they came back to exile, they basically tried to rebuild it, it wasn't as good. Herod spruced it up just before Jesus, and then we're in Jesus' time. So that's about 15. 100 years of history in 10 seconds something like that but what we what we're not talking about here is is this this temple as god's dwelling place idea like that is a beautiful theme of the scriptures and it's um, it's why we can expect the presence of god amongst us as a community it's why we look after our bodies because we are temples of the Holy Spirit. But what's going on here is it's particularly talking about this idea as temple as a, a place where sacrifices are offered and talking about the sorts of priests that, do, that, uh, that offers them. Now, in this lockdown, um, this lockdown, the whole pandemic, um, one of the things that has developed in the Potter households one of our favourite, uh, the kids' favourite games, has been something called a sofa soft play. Basic idea, you jump around on the sofa, we've got a blue blanket that goes on the floor that operates as the sea, we've got a beige blanket that goes on the floor that operates as the sand, we've got a blanket that doesn't really fit any colour, so that's the bridge, Yeah, genius. And um, we basically turn the lights off, get a disco ball going on, put a bit of Renko kids on and jump around. And my son particularly, Zachary, he's not quite two yet, he absolutely loves it. He often requests this. Now, he has actually been to a real soft play, but he can't remember it. He was too young at the time. And so he's so excited about this sofa soft play thing, and yet ultimately what he's excited about is only an imitation of the real thing. Like one day when he gets to go to a soft play, he is going to lose his mind seeing like the climbing wall and the ball pits and the huge structures and kids running around everywhere. But he's excited only about an imitation. And the Jews of the first century when Jesus came, they loved their temple. They were so passionate about it. They thought that it was heaven on earth. It was like God's dwelling place on earth. And so let's say like in one of the gospels, Mark chapter 13, Jesus comes out of the temple and one of his disciples says to him, look, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. Very common kind of idea of just loving the temple. So then of course, when Jesus said to some of the Jewish leaders, like destroy this temple in three days and I will rebuild it. They freaked out. He was meaning his body, but they, but they thought he was meaning the temple. and They thought, oh, come on, have some respect. It took years to build this thing. It's magnificent. Don't even talk about its destruction. How dare you? And so, of course, then when Jesus cleansed the temple and turned over all the, the tables and the money changers and prophesied its destruction, which would eventually come by temporarily ceasing its activity, they just couldn't deal with it. They were furious. But what the, the writer to the Hebrews with this Jewish mindset, is saying, is just, just take a step back for a minute, and you know your temple you're so excited about. We've got a way better high priest than your temple priests. You know those sinful ones who keep dying? No, we've, we've got, to draw on the end of chapter seven, Jesus, the eternal sinless son of God. And eight verse four, I know that he wouldn't be a Levitical or earthly priest in your system anyway, but those priests that you're so excited about in the temple that you love, they only serve a copy of the real thing that's in heaven anyway. Just look back to what God says to Moses, he says. God said to Moses, make this temple, this tabernacle, like the one that I'm going to show you in heaven. Make it like the real one. The place that Jesus ministers, he says in 8 verse 2, is way better. It's set up by God, not by man. He's like, what are you guys doing messing around with an imitation sofa soft play? When the ministry of Jesus is so much better, the covenant that he mediates is better as we saw. And it's enacted on way better promises. And then he launches into uh, the bound covenant that we looked at. So we don't have to go there. So we can jump into 9 verse 1 where he picks it up again with equal passion and says, you know, this is where Holly started reading. There was a, a, a tent, a tabernacle. It had stuff in it. He basically sort of lists a few things, like, I haven't really got time to talk about that right now. And so he goes to verse six in chapter nine, he says, once the stuff had been made in this portable temple, the tabernacle, the the priests kind of do their thing in the first section. It was a two-parter, first section, second section, first section called the the holy place. But then he says, you remember, like once a year, the high priest could go into the second section, but only with the blood of a sacrifice and only with a, a cloud of incense to cover him from the glory of God that he was Only then can he go into the most holy place, the second section, the place where the very presence of God dwelt. And he's saying the fact, this is 9 verse 8, that this second section, this most holy place, the place where the presence of God, the fact that only he can go, only once a year, only with all these conditions, it just shows you that clearly access is not continually open into the presence of God. And so if you're still relying on that, he's saying to them, if you're still using that for your system, well, it's an analogy for the fact that you are relying on something that can't ultimately cleanse your conscience cleansed conscience. Doesn't that have so much bearing in our society today? I wish I hadn't done that thing. I wish I could forget that memory. I wish I could lose that habit. But he says in 9 verse 11, if you trust in Jesus who ministers in the better, the greater, the heavenly place, and he has permanently gone into the presence of God on your behalf, not by earthly sacrifices, but by his own blood, by his own death on a cross, which was the perfect sacrifice to God, once for all time, eternal sacrifice, to bring you with him in his life, death, and resurrection and present you blameless before the Father. He secured for you, it says in the passage, an eternal redemption, an eternal freedom. He adopted you as part of his family. He gave you his very name in the term Christian. He called you to himself. He gave purpose to your life. He has a plan for you. And 9 verse 13, his sacrifice can purify your conscience every bit of guilt taken away, every ounce of shame covered, every stain he can remove, even every violation against you, he can cleanse because you made perfect in his sight. Wow, such is the ministry of Jesus. And if that's first century Jewish thinking that this passage comments into, well, what what about us? What about 21st century Western culture? And it's here where I think things just dovetail so well with how God was leading us in the worship time earlier. If you ask the average person on the street, what is our society known for, our nation known for? Maybe they would say, oh, it's the freedom to be yourself, to define your identity. And yet aren't we finding that the self just cannot bear this weight where there's so much ethical confusion around, where we have a mental health crisis in our nation, where even our very categories of health and wealth and tolerance have all just come crumbling down and shown to be just not quite as strong as we thought they were in the last year or so. And yet how about instead the one who created us, who redeems us? who gives us a greater freedom, a greater identity as part of his people. That's where we find who we truly are. That's where we know fulfillment and purpose. Maybe instead someone um, might say, oh, it's, it's about sexual liberation. And yet even with that, once again, isn't there so much confusion around? You think even some of the um, the, the debate, Sharon Davis and others, about um, the swimmers in the, in the Olympics and, and bringing some of the transgender questions into that is so much confusion around kind of how we talk about these things in our wider society. Sometimes in the way people talk about sex, it can just be reduced to some kind of almost idea of like a transactional act, some kind of momentary pleasure, but lasting regret. We're seeing all across our media acts of violation that have happened just coming out into the open. Clearly something with our culture's way of thinking about these things is not right. And yet it's only because of Jesus that we have categories of good sexual ethics in the first place, of why it is so precious, of why it's not just a a free for all, of why it is more than self-satisfaction. Because only in him is true love and fulfillment found. Maybe you could personalize it, this question, and you could say, well, what are my biggest desires? What right now? What am I longing for? What, what is my life known for? Well, whatever they are, at the root of them will be some kind of hunger for something that is, mostly, that is only and most truly found in Jesus himself. And if that begs the question of, well, what about this? Or why? Tell me more. I really would love to invite you onto the Alpha course that that, uh, Ben and Claude were, were talking about a moment ago. Or if you're a member of a home group as a part of Grace Church, then what a great conversation to be having this week. What are the things I most desire in my life and how are they most truly satisfied in Jesus? Because the point of this passage essentially is to say, why would you ever settle for less? Jesus is incredible. Why would we ever settle for driving into the signpost or just going with the imitation sofa soft play? Jesus is everything. And looking to him is our chief end. Let's have the band up. We're going to pray together and then we'll see what, what God wants to do. Let's just take a moment just to come before our Lord and Father, we, we thank you so much for this beautiful status as dearly beloved children of God that you have given us in and through the finished work of Jesus. We thank you for your fulfilling of that great promise you made to your people that truly you would write your ways on our hearts that by the spirit, we would know you're leading, you're guiding, your are prompting that we would know you personally that our sins would be forgiven and so lord as we come to you now god i pray that we wouldn't ever um live in this uh, description of failure that that the world would give us or sometimes that we would give ourselves but that truly we would know that you have qualified us to share in this beautiful kingdom of yours i pray we wouldn't ever settle for anything less than all that you have for us that our desires and our longings would not be misplaced in something that cannot ultimately fulfill them, but we would truly know the purpose for which you created us, to worship you as part of your covenant people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.